University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. I want to play a quick game with you as we begin our time together. I'm going to name a subject, and you're going to decide whether or not you are comfortable or uncomfortable talking about this subject with another person. So on your right hand, I want that to count as your yes vote. On your left hand, I want that to count as your no vote. So yes is yes, I feel absolutely comfortable talking about this subject with other people. Or the left hand, it's no. Dear God in heaven, do not ask me to have this conversation with other people. So yes. And no. Are you ready? First topic, quantum physics. No, I don't know what I'm talking about there. Number two, anatomy. Anybody? Uh, yeah, I, I'll talk about uh, anatomy. Uh, equality. Yeah. Mathematics. Ugh, not so much for me. Uh, theology. Yeah, I'll give it that one. Politics. Probably somewhere in between, maybe a maybe. We'll count your pinky toes as, as, as a matter of those. Uh, what about the human, uh, human professed developmental system? Um, probably a no for me. I'm not going to go and talk to another person about that. And finally, number eight, what about money? You see, money and politics and religion make the top list every year of the most unattractive topics to talk to other people about. So let's talk about money this morning. Take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 18. For many, as soon as you hear the church talking about money, we roll our eyes and, and close our ears off to it. So before you tune me out, uh, let me reassure you that the motivations of me talking to you about money this morning have absolutely nothing to do with you contributing to the church. Let me say that again. There is no motivation within me of talking about money this morning so that you will contribute to University Baptist Church. But did you know that the, that the Bible addresses money over 2,172 times? And to give you a little comparison, the Bible talks about believing 273 times, praying 371 times, and love 714 times. Jesus spoke about money 16 out of his 38 parables. One out of seven verses in Matthew and Luke and Mark are about money. This leaves Jesus talking about money 25% of the time. See, I can't do a little mathematics. But then when you compound this with all the passages within the number of times that Jesus talks about work and busyness, it certainly challenges us to consider why. Why did Jesus talk so much about this stuff? And so this morning, we are starting a new series, Moneyball, why Jesus talks about money and work and busyness. And we're going to investigate why Jesus is so interested in all these things over the next couple of weeks. And for this, we begin in our text in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Have you ever had great intentions when starting a conversation and just the opening words out of your mouth fall to the ground in disappointment, kind of like if you've ever had ice cream fall out of a cone? That is this guy in this moment. He has a bad takeoff. That, that engine is sputtering before he even taxis to the runway. Why do you ask me what is good? 
God is the one good thing in this world. And if you want to enter into life, Jesus says, just do what he tells you, right? Uh, that's what I meant to say. You can almost hear the young man saying, but beyond the bad start to this conversation, the man raises a very fascinating question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The Greek word he uses there is uh, kleronomia, which, which means to obtain or to inherit or to acquire. It's the notion that eternal life is something that must be deserved. It's something that is coming to him because of who he is, like his inheritance from his father. Eternal life is his. He just needs to know what he has to do in order to acquire it. So it begs the question, can we do anything to inherit the kingdom of God, to obtain it by our own actions? And it says this in verse 20, Jesus answered him, you know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. I mean, this guy is remarkable. He's rich, he's powerful, and apparently he's a perfectionist when it comes to the Jewish law. He hasn't broken any of the commands according to him. And if you had a poster child of first century Palestinian Judaism, this guy would be on the cover. And he knows that Jesus will offer him more than the answers that he knows, more than the laws he's supposedly a perfectionist on. Therefore, he asked Jesus, what do I still lack? That's a dangerous question to ask somebody. I'm never going to ask Jennifer, my wife, what I still lack because I would be scared of what she would say as a result. But it says this in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, wait, Jesus. You, you misunderstood his question, and, and, and then, well, then you gave him the wrong answer. Let me restate his question to you. What must he do to inherit eternal life? He didn't ask what stuff he must get rid of or what things about himself he must change. Jesus you didn't exactly give him the answer that he was he was looking for so let me let me go back and, and let's just let's just say this question really slow what must he do to inherit eternal life you see the first recipient of jesus answer cringes and walks away and pretty much everyone who reads jesus words on this cringes and walks away this man had huge theological issues with jesus on possessions Pretty much everybody has huge theological issues with Jesus on possessions. It's so uncomfortable. It's so countercultural. It's so well uncapitalistic and so un American when you think about it. And it just doesn't make sense. What does possessions and money and level of wealth have anything to do with inherit eternal life and following Jesus? And of all the things I want to preach about, I can tell you that money is not on the top of the list. It's just weird and uncomfortable. Then why did you write this series, dummy? Uh, you, could have, you could have done something else. I guess I'm a glutton for punishment. 
You see, even reading this conversation with Jesus and, and this man is so uncomfortable. I mean, we can relate, can we? And this is the question that I was asking myself coming and researching and writing this message. When I really took a deeper look at myself, I thought, well, maybe I can connect with this man more than I care to admit. You see, I was an early adopter to Apple, and I catch myself every September when Apple rolls out their new products thinking, well, you know, my iPhone doesn't seem, uh, you know, it, maybe it's a little old compared to these newer ones, so maybe I should upgrade and pay more for a nicer device, or wow, look at these upgrades they made with the Apple Watch. Maybe I should get the latest one instead of the one I have. During football season, I enjoyed the feature on the ESPN app that allows you to watch multiple games on the screen at the same time, except this year I found myself thinking, well, you know, I can't really see it well on this 44-inch screen TV. Maybe if I just get rid of this one and get a 64-inch, I'd be able to see the games a lot better. A friend of mine uh, <laughs> took this to the next level when he said that he installed two TVs in his bedroom so that he could watch two games on 50-inch screen TVs. And innocent me thought he put them both up so that he could watch a game on one and his wife could watch whatever she was wanting on the other so they could cuddle together watching TV. No, she actually is forced to watch the game on her iPhone while he's watching whatever he wants on those two TVs. So, okay, if we're honest, we can relate. As much as things change, they really do stay the same. A recent study found that 54% of Americans feel overwhelmed by clutter, and 78% of Americans have no idea what to do with their clutter. The average American has over 300,000 items in their home. And to make room for all that stuff, Americans have tripled their home size over the last 50 years. Get this, 25% of Americans don't park in their two-car garage because they have stuff filled in there. I just got a feeling that a lot of wives just gave their, their husband's eyes when I was reading that statistic. It, we still don't have room for our stuff. One in 10 people rent a storage unit for their extra stuff that doesn't fit into their houses. We are training the next generation too. 3.1% of the world's children live in America, but American children own 40% of the toys consumed globally. I did a little experiment last night and I looked in my closet and I found that I have three perfectly good hoodies and then a separate three hoodies that I call them my work in the yard hoodies. I have four pairs of hiking boots in my house. Two of them are old pairs that I work in the yard with. Two of them are new pairs depending on the season I'm hiking in. And don't let me get me started on the old running shoes that I keep around just in case I need them in the future. When I went through our closet this summer, I still had paper clippings of my high school football career. I mean, speaking of glory days, it was okay. It wasn't that great to keep those things around. I had over 2,000 CDs in my collection, nevertheless the fact that they are backed up on an iPod and an external hard drive, and that's just the beginning. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I ain't got stuff. And don't worry, Jesus, I, I don't have enough in my bank account for, for you to worry about struggling to give it away and to follow you. It, it, it might not be that kind of stuff. It might not be a room full of Beanie Babies and 50 years worth of magazines, but often we accumulate stuff in our life that we don't recognize as stuff. It's fashion, it's fitness, it's movies, it's shows, it's projects, it's tools, it's housing improvements, it's cars, it's meals, it's pictures, online storage, it's Facebook friends, it's Instagram followers, it's likes on social media. 
we might not actually accumulate wealth, but so often we tie closely to our status, our social standing, and our image. For others, we grip tightly to family and friends and friendships and relationships. And, and to others, we can't imagine parting with our work and the way we use our time. Instead of possessions, Jesus might have used the word rightness or religion or political allegiance. What about the accumulation of drama and control in our lives? You see, the thing about our consumer culture is that it transforms a want into a need. And there's a huge difference between what we actually need and what we actually want. When you really think about the core of what we actually need in life, it's quite simple. We need air in our lungs. We need water and food in our bodies, a place to rest, a, a way to exert energy uh, for the energy that we consume. We keep our bodies in check. And, and that's it. Air, water, food, and exertion. And I would even throw in there education and the advancement of things like electricity and medical care and a good cup of coffee. And since our society doesn't function on the bartering of, of sheep and children for goods and services, we have to have money to provide for these needs. Money comes out of the toil of our labors. You have to have money to provide for our needs. So a need is something that you have in order to survive, to function each day. I need a, a bowl of oatmeal in the morning to power my body through lunchtime. I need shelter to keep me dry and warm. I need medicine to fight infections and diseases. I need clothing to keep me from, well, from all of y'all vomiting by me walking around naked. And anything beyond this, we, we don't really need. It's just stuff. It's just excess. On the other hand, a, a want is something that we feel like we have to have. Sometimes I want to feel like a want is a need. And as a result, we simply buy because we believe that we need it. Or if we don't have it, then we're going to be missing out or we're worth less or we're going to suffer as a result of it. And soon without realizing it, our wants overtake our needs as we go about our way of life. When the coronavirus pandemic finally registered as a reality for Americans, they rushed to the store to buy toilet paper and cleaning supplies and food and hand sanitizer. And if you were a late adopter to this, then you found that there are no cleaning supplies and no hand sanitizer out there. In steps this guy from Tennessee, who had in his garage over 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. And he was happy to sell it on Amazon for anywhere between eight to $70 per bottle. And he was also selling face masks, 50 pack for 40 to $50 online. Some might call it price gouging, others might call it simply supply and demand. You see, for this man in our text, possessions were an obstacle for his way of finding true life. And Jesus' response to this man reveals what this man really wanted to attain eternal life in the kingdom of God was much in the way that he had attained everything else in his life through power and resources and money he wants to build a little kingdom of this little stuff. And eternal life in the kingdom of God is not a spiritual desire for this man. For, for the rich young man we read in this text, the kingdom of God is, is just a mere object or an idea. You see, there's something going on much deeper here than just consumerism and a love for stuff. There's a deeper spiritual issue going on with this man. And it's at the heart of this passage. It's at the heart of this man. He is worshiping the object or the idea of eternal life rather than the God who's calling him into true life. 
More than this, we see clearly that it's not eternal life in the kingdom of God that he desires because he loves his possessions and his wealth and his stuff. This is the very thing that Jesus calls him to sell and to give away. The Bible has a word for this. It's idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of the wrong gods. And what's fascinating is that the word idolatry in the New Testament literally translates the worship of mammon. The word mammon means riches or treasures. So even this man, he doesn't desire eternal life. He, he wants to attain things in the same way he's attained everything else in his life. And this is what Jesus is talking about earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16, verse 13, when he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will devote himself to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and for this man to truly inherit eternal life, for him to truly receive the kingdom of God, he must relinquish the thing that gives him security and prosperity and hope and a foundation. And Jesus sees what the young man worships. And so therefore, he invites the young man to change his way of thinking and living. He invites him to find true life by walking on a different path. As the great Richard Rohr put it, but I do not think you should get rid of your idols until you have learned what it is they teach you. You see, what we should be so disconcerting about this exchange is not what Jesus asked this man to do. It should not be that it was his riches and powerful that Jesus asked him to walk away from. What's so disconcerting about this passage is that Jesus is offering this man a new way. Jesus is offering him a way that will lead to true goodness and fulfillment in his life. And if we were to close our eyes and open our ears, we can truly hear what Jesus is saying to this man. He's saying, these other gods, they're not going to have your, you're going to have your whole life spinning. They'll have you running a rat race with no end. These, these other gods will lead to an endless cycle of more and more and more in your life. But it, it's never going to fill you. It, it's never going to fill that void you feel in your life. There's never going to be enough stuff, never enough comfort, never enough security. But follow me. And following me, you'll find true life. You'll find life to the full. I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds so different from the way you've been taught. But true life is centered on joy and love and peace and goodness and humility and self-control and mercy and justice and forgiveness and grace and true freedom. See, Jesus is offering this man a whole new world, not a, not a packaged and manufactured consumer commodity of stuff, of power, of security. Instead, Jesus is offering this man the world as God created it to be, as God created him to be. But this is good news. This is a great invitation, and it's met with rejection, and he walks away. And it says this in verse 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come of eternal life. In Jesus' day, the people believed that wealth was a sign of, of God's favor. And this is why the disciples are astonished at what Jesus has just said and done. If this man 
can't be saved. If he's not willing to give up all that God gave him, the disciples might have thought to themselves, what does this mean for us? The word they used here, saved, shows the depth of their uncertainty. It's the Greek word sozo, which means to be kept safe, to rescue from danger, and does not not speak to our anxiety of letting go of our other gods. These are the things that we have believed will keep us safe, will rescue us from the perils of life that will save us. And in the face of the disciples' shock and confusion and disappointment, Jesus turns the disciples to wonder. It is the wonder of an unfathomable God that makes impossible things possible. What seems impossible with us is possible through God. It just requires faith. And the sad irony to this story is that while Jesus is challenging this man to give away the very thing that was holding him back from finding true life, Jesus then tells the disciples that choosing to step out in faith is not an invitation into poverty. He says, no one who leaves behind their comfort for the sake of me will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come of eternal life. Jesus was inviting this man, the disciples, and us to see that following him requires faith, faith in the impossible. In turn, God gives us many times over what we need in this life to live it to the full. We might not get it. We might not agree with Jesus. We might not like it. But if we are willing to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing, to know that he knows what he's talking about, where he is leading us, then we should follow him in faith. It's simple. People are starting to get restless. I mean, jobs have been lost. Routines have been decimated. Lives have literally been lost. And you're starting to see small bands of people starting to protest to go back to normal. Some of these people have, were recently interviewed uh, about why they're doing this, why they're protesting to go back to normal. And, and the answers are quite surprising, actually. One lady said, I kid you not, I just need to go to the beauty shop to get my highlights done. Another guy said, I, I just want to go to the store to buy some stuff, you know, like grass seed. Yes, I, I need grass seed for my yard. And another person said, well, I just I really want to go out and get on my jet ski. Highlights and grass seed and jet ski riding. I mean, really, I mean, I could go for some hair plugs and some high growth hormones, but not grass seed. You see, in order for us to truly come to terms with this passage, we have to consider what really we find impossible to give away. If Jesus were to take out the challenge, to sell everything you have, to give the money to the poor, and then come follow me, what would be that something else we would fill in that spot? And if you just thought to yourself, oh, thank God, there's another option besides giving all my stuff away, then I hate to break it to you, but it's your stuff that's getting in your way of truly finding life in Christ. But stop and really think about that. This is the great confrontation of this passage, a collision between our desires to find true life in Jesus and the things we can't let go of. It seems so impossible. There's a fascinating story that takes place in the next chapter of Luke. It's a story of a man named Zacchaeus, and we, we know this story. Zacchaeus is a tax collector for Rome, and because he had the threat of Rome on his lips, he took a little extra uh, for himself on the side. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to town, but the crowds are too large to see 
the teacher. And so Zacchaeus climbs up to the tree to see Jesus. And there Jesus sees him and calls him down to invite Zacchaeus to, to come to his house for dinner. And Luke tells us that the people were aghast at such an act. Why would Jesus eat dinner with such a despicable man, our enemy and financial oppressor? But before Jesus can even utter words out of his mouth towards Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus tells Jesus that he will give half his possessions to the poor. The crowd must have bemoaned such a declaration, thinking to themselves, well, this man has more than plenty to live um, in the way that he's made so many people uncomfortable. But then Zacchaeus shocks the crowd when he continues to say, and then I will give four times the amount back to people that I have taken. You know, Jesus hasn't even preached a sermon. He hasn't even had a conversation with Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus knew that following Jesus was far better than the life he had created for himself. Jesus was worth the cost of him losing what he had built for himself. And without even having to ask Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus answers Jesus with an act of faith. Zacchaeus went there. He gave up this to follow Christ. Remember in Jesus' conversation with this rich ruler, he, he was so righteous. He was such an upstanding citizen, not someone obviously living a bad life. Yet Jesus tells the man to go and sell everything he has, to distribute 100% of his money to the poor. And after that, come back and follow Jesus. It seems that there's really no hard rule or fixed percentage of what Jesus is expecting someone to give up. Instead, Jesus was and is inviting people to radical open-handedness and generosity to trust that Christ knows what Christ is doing. Zacchaeus was challenged to give up half of what this young man was challenged to do. Not all of Jesus' earliest followers were destitute and, and alone and homeless and poor. Some were very wealthy and powerful, and yet all who followed Jesus into something wonderfully new. As one author put it, if you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol would just grow back. Jesus is calling us to do the same. Jesus is whispering in our ears and your ear and my ear, whatever God you have made in your life, it's not going to bring you satisfaction and wholeness. But if you give up that God to follow me, you will discover something new. Do we have faith to follow Jesus into the impossible? Let's pray together.